Well, good morning. It's great to be here with you. Uh, if you are a guest, I want to give you a warm welcome. If you're watching online, uh, so glad that you're tuned in with us uh, today. Um, we are wrapping up our series um, just before Easter uh, called Suit Up, Fighting Back Against the Devil's Schemes. And if you remember going all the way back to week one, um, I want us to remember that Paul said we need to put on the full armor of God. Not just some of these pieces that we've discussed throughout this series, that we need to put on every piece of armor that we have through Jesus Christ. So just to review, week one we talked about truth. Uh, we said it starts with the belt of truth. Um, if you remember week one, I talked about, you know, the long con that Satan tries to set for all of our lives. He, he, he wants to con us uh, into uh, disaster. And so uh, it starts with truth so that we can see through his schemes. Week two, we talked about the breastplate of righteousness, not our righteousness, the righteousness earned for us. Uh, through Jesus Christ. We've got to arm ourselves uh, with that. Then we talked about the shoes of the gospel of peace. Um, God wants us to strap on the shoes of the gospel of peace and trample over the temporary fears and worries of this world with the hope that we have uh, in Christ. Uh, then we talked about the, the shield of faith. We said we got to take up the shield of faith. It's something that you've got to do. That's on, that's on you. You've got to put your trust in the things God's, God's word teaches who God says you are, the promises that God gives each and every one of us. And we've got to trust that God can change things uh, even, even today. Um, and then we talked about last week the, the helmet of, of salvation. And we said uh, God wants us walking in assurance of our salvation, knowing what Christ has done for us. We put Jesus on the scale to meet God's holy standard. We get ourselves off of that scale and we put our trust fully in Jesus. He is our confidence. He is our, our boast um, because of what he, he's done for us. Okay, But that brings us this week to the, to the last uh, piece of equipment that Paul's going to mention uh, in this, this series on the armor of God, which is the sword of the Spirit. Okay, The sword of the Spirit, uh, verse 17 uh, of Ephesians 6, Paul says, take the sword of the Spirit. Now, you're going to notice something. This is different than, than all the other equipment that Paul has mentioned, right? All the other equipment was, was, was armor to protect and to defend. This is actually a weapon. This is the weapon now that, that, that Paul is is telling us we, we must take up uh, to, to push back the enemy, the sword of the spirit. This is re reference to the Roman sword. Uh, it was a double-edged sword. It, it was a lethal, lethal, lethal sword for stabbing, for slashing. You can imagine. It was ultimately meant for slaying um, the, the enemy. So what Paul is telling us here, he doesn't want us just having a good defense. He wants us having a strong offense as well to push back the enemy uh, in, our, in our lives, in our, in our own hearts, to push back the enemy in our homes, to push back the enemy in our community, and even across the world. He's saying we must take up the sword of the Spirit. He doesn't want you just having a good defense. He wants you having a good offense. In other words, he doesn't want you being the Chicago Bears of spiritual warfare the best way I could say it, and some of you know who I'm talking to. Um, he wants us having a strong offense, and to do that, if 
we're going to push back the enemy in our lives, in our children's lives, in our community, we, we have to take up our, our one weapon that, that we're given. So what is the sword of the Spirit exactly? Well, he tells us, take the sword of the Spirit, which is the what? It's the Word of God. He's talking about the Bible. He is talking about the Scriptures, okay? And so that's what I'm going to talk about today. <clears throat> I'm going to talk about the Bible. And, and, and really, my hope for all of us today is to recognize that the Bible is a unique book, that the Bible is a special book, that there is no other book on planet Earth like the Bible. That is my ultimate hope for us today, just to recognize the uniqueness of the Bible. And if I were to ever teach like a seminary course on the Bible, I'm gonna, I the things I'm going to talk about today are the things I would talk about, and, and I'm just going to warn you, I've, I'm kind of cramming all of that into this short message today. So just hang in there, because I'm going to throw a lot at you. <clears throat> um, but what I want to do is answer three questions. First, what is the Bible? And talk about some of the unique um, uh, things that we, we find in the scriptures. Uh, talk about why is the Bible so powerful, and then I'll end with how do we, how do we use the Bible. But first, I want to start with this question, what, what is the Bible? Well, just kind of to give you an overview, the Bible is a, is a, a collection of 66 individual books written over a period of roughly 1,500 years, written by around 40 different authors, written on three different continents, written in three different languages, primarily Hebrew and Greek, but there's a little Aramaic in there as well. And just that right there makes the Bible very unique in what it is. But I want to talk specifically about a few things that, that are very unique to, to the Bible. Uh, the first thing I want to talk about is that the Bible is made up of two testaments. Right? We, we probably all know this um, to, to some degree, that the Bible is made up of the Old Testament and the New Testament. Uh, but maybe something you didn't know is that you could replace that word testament with the word covenant. This idea of an, the, an agreement that God makes with his people. And so as believers... We recognize there's an Old Testament, an Old Covenant, which is primarily about God and his relationship with the people of Israel, interacting with them through the law and rituals. And then there's the New Testament, the New Covenant, which is God's agreement with us who have put our faith in Jesus Christ, the one who fulfilled all those laws and rituals in our place. Okay? And, and this makes the Bible unique, the fact that it's made up of these two different covenants, because um, oftentimes, um, you know, people will say things like, how do, you, how do you Christians believe in this book? I mean, some of those practices are so barbaric and things like that. And if you ask them, like, what are you talking about? They're going to they're gonna inevitably point to the Old Testament, okay? Um, but what we get to say is, well, we don't live according to the laws and the rituals of, of the Old Testament any longer. Uh, Jesus has fulfilled those laws. He's fulfilled those rituals in our place, and he's given us a new command. And the new command is very simple. 
love God, love people, okay? So some of you, even next week, you know, Easter, you're going to be sitting around the dinner table, and maybe you have that weird uncle in the family who wants to give you a hard time about your faith and say, how do you Christians believe in those teachings and those things that are in the Bible? And you go, what are you talking about? You're inevitably going to point to the Old Testament, and you're going to say, we don't live according to the Old Testament laws and rituals anymore, okay? We live according to the New Testament because Jesus has fulfilled those things for us. And the new command is love God and love people. And that's something I think we can, we can all get behind. And I want you to understand something. This makes the Bible unique. I mean, think about this. You see God's providence even in this. Because some of the things in the Old Testament, they, they do go against our modern sensibilities. And God knew that. So, so Christ came to fulfill those things so that we could live according to a new way, a new covenant, which sets us up to still be relevant and missional in the world 2,000 years later. Every other religion, mind you, is still living according to those ancient ways. If, if you're an Orthodox Jew, for example, you still have to sacrifice animals technically. And that's what your book tells you to do. Do. That's the law that they're supposed to be living according. Notice how God knew this was going to be a, 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 a problem. And so through Christ, he's freed us so that we don't have to live according to those Old Testament laws and rituals. We put our trust in Jesus, and we are set up well now to be just as relevant today as we were 2,000 years ago. That's God's providence, friends, freeing us from the trappings of, of ancient times in the ancient world. He set us up very, very well. Now, this doesn't mean we don't read the Old Testament. It doesn't mean we don't still learn lessons from the Old Testament. It doesn't mean there's not still good moral teachings that come from the Old Testament. But the law and the rituals and all those things, they've been fulfilled in Christ. We live according to a New Testament, a new covenant, agreement, with God. This makes the Bible very unique, okay? The second thing I want us to see, though, is that the Bible tells a single story. One single story. Many Christians don't know this. Many of us, when we sit down and we read our Bibles, we, 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 we turn somewhere random, and we have no idea how it fits into the big picture and into the grand scheme of things. We don't realize that the Bible is actually telling us one single story that is about God's plan for redemption through Jesus Christ. This is the overarching story, okay, of, of the Bible. It's God's plan for redemption through Jesus Christ. Starts with Genesis, right? Creation. And uh, God creates the world and creates mankind, puts mankind in the garden, puts Adam and Eve in the garden. And if you remember, the command is be fruitful and multiply. What they were supposed to do is use that garden as a template, and they were supposed to spread that garden over the rest of the planet. That was their task have children, and now start spreading what you have seen here in this garden over make the world look like this. But we know the story, right? Adam and Eve, they rebelled against God. They sinned and became ashamed. Um, 
This brought what we call the fall, a curse into the world, infecting and affecting each and every one of our lives, including nature. Romans 8 says the world is groaning, longing for redemption. But God there begins his plan to redeem mankind and to redeem the world. And uh, you fast forward, uh, Adam and Eve have, their, have children, um, but the, the, the world becomes so corrupt that God's plan for redemption is threatened. And so he calls a man named Noah, the one faithful family in the world, to build this ark, and he preserves that family. But the reason God has to send of the flood is it plays into this idea of redemption and redeeming the world. It says the world had become so corrupted. But even after Noah and his family get off the ark, I mean, right away, Noah gets drunk, things happen in the family, and it starts to raise this question, is there any hope for humanity? Is there really any hope for us? Okay, you fast forward a little later, then you get to, um, to, to Abraham. God calls Abraham, says, you, Abraham, I am going to bless the world. Through you, Abraham, I am going to continue my plan for redemption, and right, we know the story, Father Abraham had many sons. I am one of them, and so are you. So let's all just get along, right? Right foot. Okay, anybody? You guys remember that one? And he did have many sons. He wasn't trusting as he should have been. The promise was through Sarah, your wife. You're going to have a son. You remember the story. Abraham ends up sleeping with his maidservant, Hagar, because he's not trusting God's timing. She has a son named Ishmael. And for you history buffs out there, um, what you should know is it's out of the line of Ishmael that a man named Muhammad one day is going to be born and the Muslim religion is going to be birthed. But the Bible doesn't follow the line of Ishmael. It follows eventually the promised child that does come through Sarah, which is Isaac, Isaac then has a son, Jacob. Jacob has the 12 sons that are eventually going to become the 12 tribes of Israel. But before they're in Israel, uh, uh, Jacob and his sons and, and the people of Israel find themselves trapped, enslaved in Egypt. We know the story. God sends Moses. Moses brings them out into the wilderness where they're for, there for 40 years because they don't trust God. And then through the leadership of a man named Joshua, God brings them into the promised land. Through the leadership of a man named Joshua, God brings them into the promised land. Through the leadership of a man named Joshua, God brings them into the promised land. Do you know what the name Joshua means, by the way? It means the Lord saves. The Lord saves. Let me say it one more time. Through the leadership of a man named Joshua, God brings the Israelites into the promised land. They get into the promised land. King David rises to power. Solomon, for a time, they're faithful. And, and, and they are experiencing all kinds of blessing in the promised land. But then you read on throughout the Old Testament. And the idolatry begins. And you start to read about captivity and disaster. And again, you get to the last book of the Old Testament, the book of Malachi. And it raises that question again. Is there any hope for humanity? And then historically, there's what's called the 400 years of silence where God didn't send any prophet to speak to Israel, and they're left to themselves. But then, 
We open the book of Matthew. We get into the New Testament. You open the book of Matthew, and an angel appears to a woman named Mary and says, Mary, you're going to be with child, and she names her child Jesus. Do you know what the Hebrew name of Jesus is? It's not Jesus. It's Joshua. It's Joshua. What did Joshua do? He led his people into the promised land. Are you starting to see the beauty of the scriptures? It is beautiful. Joshua is born. Jesus is born. We know about his life, his death, burial, what we're going to celebrate next week, the resurrection. And then on the day of Pentecost, 50 days after his death, something unique happens. The Holy Spirit comes down and begins to indwell everyone who puts their faith in Jesus. And as where the Old Testament saints had to just live according to the law and the rituals the best they could, now God has given us his very presence so that we can be changed from the inside out and live according to his ways. Pentecost, and this births what's called the age of the church. You ever wondered where you fit into the Bible story? You are here, the age of the church. What is the purpose of the church? To point people to Jesus in God's plan to redeem the world. And then you turn to the last book of the Bible. The book of Revelation, which teaches us that one day Jesus is going to return and he's going to make all things right again. And what is he going to do? He's going to spread the garden over the entire world and we return to where we started, the garden of Eden in the new heavens and the new earth. Friends, are you seeing the beauty of the Bible when I talk about it, I get the chills. Again, this was written over a period of 1,500 years, 40 different authors, three different continents, three different languages, and God brought this all together to tell one single unifying story about God's plan for redemption. There's no other book on earth like it. The Bible is a unique, unique book. In fact, Jesus said this to the Pharisees. John 5, 39, he said, you study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me. He was talking about the Old Testament, by the way. He's saying you missed the point. You missed the point. So my hope for us is that when we sit down to read the Bible, we're going to read it through the context, through the lens of what it's ultimately about. It's ultimately trying to point us, whether Old Testament, New Testament, to this Jesus and God's plan to redeem the world. You could kind of think of it like a, 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 a puzzle. Imagine if you dumped out like a puzzle on your table, uh, but you had no idea what the puzzle was of, and you, you pick up one of those pieces of the puzzle. You're like, what, what is this? Is it a cloud? Is it a, is it a pillow? You don't know exactly what you're looking at, but then you look at, the box. And usually they put the picture, right, of the puzzle you're making on the box. And that, oh, I see what this is. It's not a, it's not a, it's not a pillow. It's a, it's a marshmallow. 
It's a marshmallow. They're, they're, these are people sitting around a campfire roasting a marshmallow, right? And I know exactly where it now fits in the picture. A lot of us Christians, we open up the Bible and we're looking and we're like, I don't even know what I'm reading. I don't know what this is. I don't know what I'm looking at. Friends, my hope for you is when you open up the Bible, now you've got the box. You've got the picture and you're going to realize what I am reading is ultimately trying to point me some way, somehow, in some shape, in some form to Jesus Christ. The Bible tells one single story. Oh, I love it. Okay, but there's one more thing I want to um, talk, talk to us about, about what is the Bible that's unique. And, and the other part of it is the Bible is, is filled with prophecy. Most of us are probably aware of this. The Bible makes all kinds of prophetic claims. And, you know, the world talks about prophecy. And there's been a lot of, you know, prophets apparently, you know, throughout history. Um, how many of you have heard of Nostradamus? Right, we've heard that name, Nostradamus. He was apparently a prophet. He apparently prophesied the, the World Trade Centers, the 9-11, the buildings going down. And what I want to do, just to show you the difference between like worldly prophecy and biblical prophecy, I want to read for you one of the prophecies of Nostradamus. Uh, he said, earth-shaking fire from the center of the earth will cause tremors around the new city. Two great rocks will war for a long time, and then Arethusa will redden a new river. Okay, and from this, people, people say, well, uh, he, was, he was predicting 9-11. This is a prophecy. So maybe you read it and you go, okay, I mean, tremors around the new city. Maybe that is a New York city. Two great rocks. Maybe that's referring to the two buildings. But as you look deeper at it, you go, earth-shaking fire from the center of the earth. Well, that's not what happened. It came from the sky, not the center of the earth. The new city, I don't know. That could be just about anything. Uh, two great rocks will war for a long time. Maybe that's referring to buildings. Most likely, that's talking about two armies. And there was no new river, Right? You see how these, these, these worldly prophecies kind of work. You're kind of like, oh, maybe, <laughs> maybe. I want to contrast that now with, look at, the, look at the biblical prophecies. Look at what we have in the Bible, how specific these are. This is from Micah 5.2. It says, but you, Bethlehem. I mean, it gives us an actual city, an actual place. But you, Bethlehem, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. Even referencing his divinity here, that he's not just a normal man. This is talking about Jesus, whose origins are from old, from ancient times. He's the God-man. And where does the Bible tell us? This was written 700 years before Jesus' birth. Where does it say he's going to be born? It doesn't say the new city. It says Bethlehem. Bethlehem. It tells us the exact location. By the way, do you know what Bethlehem means? It means house of bread. House of bread. What did Jesus say? I am the bread of life. <laughs> 
He was born in the house of bread, the bread of life. Again, are you seeing God's providence in all of this? Isaiah 7, 14, therefore the Lord uh, himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and you will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Tells us exactly the event that would happen. Mary was a virgin. Again, 700 years before that was fulfilled. And then this one was written a 1,000 years before Jesus was born. Psalm 22 says, A pack of villains encircles me. They pierce my hands and feet. The Old Testament told us that Jesus was going to be pierced. Isaiah, again, 700 years before Christ, said he would be pierced for our transgressions. The Roman cross was not a form of execution until 200 B.C. And this is a prophecy 800 years before the Roman crucifixion was even a thing. And so these are, what I want you to see is the Bible is made up of prophecies that are specific, that tell us exactly what's going to happen. And these things have been fulfilled you know, and some people say, well, what about outside of the Bible? Is prophecy fulfilled? I could give you a lot of prophecies that have been fulfilled even outside of the Bible, including when Jesus said, your temple in Jerusalem is going to be destroyed. And what happened in the year 70 AD, 40 years after Jesus' death? Roman army comes in, sacks Jerusalem, and destroys the temple just as Jesus Prophesied. All this to say, friends, when the Bible speaks, you and I should listen. It is a unique book. And there is no other book on earth like it. So this tells us what is the Bible and some of the uniqueness of the Bible that is different from every other book on, on, on earth. But now I want to answer this question. Why is the Bible so powerful? Why is it so powerful? Well, well, first, it's powerful because it's God-breathed. It's God-breathed. Taking notes. 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All Scripture is God-breathed. Maybe some of you have heard the word inspired. But it doesn't mean like an artist is inspired or like a musician or a painter. This means it's from God. Working through human beings, yes, working through their own unique personalities and their own writing style. Um, one of the things that was fascinating is that if you ever, like, get to study the Bible in its original languages, you see the personality of the authors come through. Peter, he needs a little help writing. Makes sense. He's a fisherman, right? His writing's not very good. Needs a little help. You read... Um, Paul. You can hear Paul's passion in his writing. The English, we often have to add periods because Paul doesn't use periods. He just keeps talking. He just keeps going. Run on sentence. It would be an English teacher's worst nightmare. And, and then you get to Luke. And I always struggled with Luke. I could never interpret Luke because Luke was a doctor and his words are, I mean, he uses these big compound words that are so hard to translate. It makes sense. We're told he was a physician. You just see their personalities come through in the original language. God worked through that, but here's the main thing. We need to understand he spoke exactly what he wanted to speak to us. And when you read this, that, that God, it's God-breathed, that Scripture is God-breathed, another way you could read that is all Scripture is God-spirited. 
It's God's spirit. We, God's spirit is in the scriptures. It's his voice. It's kind of like you're hearing me speak today on the Bible. and Maybe you're hearing my passion and my love for the scriptures. What you're hearing is my spirit come through my voice. And in the same way, the scriptures, it's, it's God's, we hear, it's where we hear his spirit. It's where we find his spirit. It's how we catch the spirit of our God. It's through his voice. It's through his word. What did Paul call it? The sword of the what? Of the spirit. It's the spirit of God speaking encouragement into your life. It's the spirit speaking hope into your life. It's the spirit speaking forgiveness and grace into your life. It's through the Bible we capture God's heart, his spirit. It's God spirited. It's God breathed. Which brings us to the second reason it's so powerful. It's because it's alive. Because it's his spirit. Because it's his voice. There's a life in the scriptures. Why Hebrews 4.12 says, for God, for the word of God is, a, is alive and active. Again, no other book like it. This book is, it's living. When Jesus was tempted in the, the wilderness and Satan was tempting him to give up his fast, Jesus answered, listen to this, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. What Jesus is saying here is there is more to your life than just physical need. There is more to your life than just physicality. There's more than just food. If you're going to truly live, if you're going to have spiritual life in you, if you are going to have hope in you, if you're going to have encouragement in you, if you're going to have life in you, it comes through hearing the voice of God. This book is his voice. And some of us, I can't help but wonder if we need a little life in our soul, in our spiritual self, in our inner self. It's the Bible that would speak that life into you. By the way, friends, this is why here at Edinburgh Church, we do not preach our opinions. I'm not preaching from second opinions up here. Everything we do is rooted in the word of God. We preach from the word of God. The ministry we do here is based on what God teaches us through his word. Because this is the book that gives life to people. And um, I got to tell you, the best part of my day is waking up in the morning, making myself a cup of coffee, sitting down, and getting into the word of God where God's voice speaks into my inner being and gives me the life I need for that day. And, and it's sad that many of us, are we have a Bible, and yet it sits on the bookshelf or sits on our dresser collecting dust. And here you have God's voice wanting to speak to you. But there's one more thing I want to say that the reason why it's so powerful, which is because it, it actually changes lives. And it can change your life. You know, in um, seminary, I studied different creation narratives across the world. If you grew up in the church, you probably only heard one creation narrative, which was the biblical creation narrative. But did you realize there's other creation narratives out there? For example, the Egyptians had a different creation narrative. 
their creation narrative, not to be too graphic for you, but it has to do with that the universe itself is God. We're made up of gods. The sun is a god. The moon is a god. These gods had sex with themselves and evolved into what they are today. And this is what Israel was hearing when they were living in Egypt. And this is what all of the creation narratives of the day were. The creation itself was somehow divine. It was God. Moses sits down and gets this special revelation from God, and he's going to say something that's so unique that we take for granted today. That in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, that God is outside of creation. He created creation. How? The Lord said, let there be light. And there was light. The Lord said, and then there was. The Lord spoke, and it happened. God speaks, and things change. And friends, we have the word of God speaking to us today. And if we will let that voice in, it will change our lives today. So we've been talking about the armor of God and protecting ourselves against our spiritual enemy, Satan. Some of us have put on an armor against God and we've hardened ourselves against God and we have a hard heart and we're not letting God's voice get into our heart. But if we would open up our hearts and say, God, I want your voice to speak into me. I'm going to begin believing what you're teaching me and telling me through your word. I'm inviting you into every room, nook and cranny closet and every skeleton in that closet that you can speak into it. Friends, I am telling you, your life will change. I am living proof your life will change because his word is living and active and when God speaks, things begin to change. Are we reading the word of God? Are we letting his voice penetrate and get in so it can begin doing the work that only God can do? You know my story coming out of drug addiction. You know my story. I'm a high school dropout. I sat down and I opened up God's word and I recognized something is unique about this book. And as I read and read and read and over years read, I didn't go to Bible school because I wanted a job. I went to the Bible school because I wanted to know the scriptures even more. I started learning. I started letting it speak into my life. And friends, it has blessed my life today, and I know it will bless my children's life if they do that, and I know it will bless the next generation if they will let this word in, and I know it will bless you. It's the word of God. Let there be, and there will be, if you will open your heart to it. So very quickly, what do we do then? How do I use this Bible? I, didn't sp I, I could have spent this entire message talking about this, what do we do? I wanted to spend this message setting up for you why the Bible is so important. Because my hope is you're going to go from here and you're going to say, yeah, maybe, maybe I should pick it up. Maybe I should open it up. So what do we do very quickly? First, I got to learn it. I know we can't all go to Bible school, we can't all go to seminary, but there are so many resources online. There's resources here at the church. By the way, Pastor Josh is going to be leading a the teaching a theology class this summer. I encourage you to be a part of that. Friends, we should crave to know and learn and become equipped with the word of God. Two, I got to claim it. 
don't be like I was all those years ago where I would hear a sermon like this or hear promises that were in the Bible and say that's true for the good people. But it can't be true for a sinner like me. And I thought I was actually honoring God by saying, God, that's too good for me. I can't claim it. I want to honor you by recognizing you would never make these promises to a sinner like me. Don't do that. There are not spiritual haves and spiritual have-nots. There are a bunch of people who just need Jesus. And this book was written for you. It's yours. God wrote it for you, for the weak, for the sick, for the sinner, for the one who needs help. This book is yours. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You've got to claim this book, friends. Do you own the promises? Are they yours? I hope so. It won't do you any good if you're not claiming it. But then we also, we proclaim it. I learn it, I claim it, and now I have to proclaim it. I have to speak the word of God. I want to speak the word of God over my children. I want to speak the word of God over you. I want you speaking the word of God in your own life. And maybe in community, maybe even in our small groups, we begin speaking the word of God to each other, encouraging one another, giving hope. It doesn't mean you have to memorize all of it. It doesn't mean you have to have every jot and tittle of it memorized. But if you just knew the gist of it and you could start speaking the powerful voice of God into others, how powerful would our church be? It's the voice. It's the spirit. Of God. It's one of the reasons we worship, by the way. When we're worshiping, what are we doing? We are declaring, we are proclaiming biblical truths. And we're going to get a chance to do that. We're going to get a chance to worship and proclaim these biblical truths over each other. And, um, and so here's what I'm going to do as I wrap up. I'm going to have you, if you can, I'm going to ask that you would stand up. So we get ready to worship. And I want to practice this. I'm going to practice it over you. And what I'm going to do is I'm just going to speak some truths over you before I pray and, and we go into worship. If anyone's feeling maybe like they can't change or there's something going on in their life today that you feel like it's always going to be like that, I, I, I want to read for you 2 Corinthians 5.17. It says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ... The new creation has come, the old has gone, the new is here. Are you claiming that? Your new creation. It's who you are in Jesus Christ. You can change. Some of you are feeling condemned this morning because of something in your past. Maybe something you're struggling with right now. Maybe something you struggled with this morning or this week. And you feel like God couldn't love a person like me. God couldn't save a person like me. Romans 8, 1. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Are you believing it? He wants you to believe. He wants you to claim it for your life. That's how you honor him. Psalm 34, 17, 18 says, God's people cry out and the Lord hears them. He delivers them from all their troubles. The Lord is close to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. Anybody crushed in spirit this morning? God wants to save you and show you his glory. Redeeming your life. 
Some of you maybe are feeling far away from God this morning. Romans 8 says, For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And if you're needing any hope today, hope that the best is still yet to come for each and every one of us who are in Christ, Revelation 21.4. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away and all things will be made new. Friends, that's the hope we have. Let's claim these truths for our life. Oh God, we thank you that you speak to us. We want to hear your voice. We want to hear the nuance in your voice. We want to hear the love in your voice. And I pray this morning we would open up our hearts to letting your voice come in to change us, to conform us to the image of Christ, to help us, to comfort us. Help us become equipped in your word, Lord, so that we can push back the enemy in our lives, in our homes, in our marriages, over our children, over our community, and over the world. Will you do that work, Lord, here at Edinburgh Church? We're going to ask you to do this in Jesus Christ's name and all God's people said, amen.